Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God shall stand forever. Well, before we get started tonight, we have one announcement. Family night, Christmas tree decorating on Saturday afternoon. That'll start about 4.30. And that the Christmas tree decorating will probably go about, what, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, about 5.15. We'll, uh, hmm? 4.35, we'll sing some Christmas carols, then we'll eat, and then we will uh, show the film. I, n- I announced that Sunday that it would be a good idea to watch the um, or to read Luke 2 and Matthew 2 the uh, from the announcement from the angels to Mary and to Joseph all the way through the birth, all the way through the uh, death of the infants in uh, Matthew 2 uh, and their departure to Egypt. And just get that in your head, read through it two or three times, and then uh, we'll see who can figure out how or find the most errors in the movie. And... Uh, that's going to be a challenge because it's not as error-filled as the Ten Commandments. Let me put it that way. <laughs> so, but it will—it'll uh, be a good, good challenge. There are some things, and uh, <clears throat> there's some interesting things um, geographically. But I'll just leave it at that. And those of you who have been to Israel, just uh, think about that a little bit while you're watching the film. Okay. Um, Having said all that, let's uh, start off with prayer, have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're in fellowship, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come together this evening, that we can study your word, that we can take the time to submit our thinking to your revelation recognizing that as the Creator God, you have addressed in Scripture everything that needs to be addressed in relation to our salvation and our spiritual life, but also within your revelation, you have given us the information we need in order to build a framework of thought so that we can think about your creation as you have created it and not solely in terms of our own experience, or in terms of how man and his limited knowledge base wants to interpret things. And so we always need to be willing to submit our thinking to your thinking and be willing to recognize that the creation, uh, society, people are what they are because you made them a certain way. And the only way to truly understand uh, who we are and our purpose in life and how human history fits within the overall scope of things is to understand the framework that's given in your word. So we pray that we would be submissive to your word, be able to focus, concentrate uh, tonight, getting rid of all those distractions, the concerns about tomorrow and yesterday and everything else that uh, distracts us while we try to sit here and focus so that we can listen to the study of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, tonight we come to uh, 
a new chapter in Hebrews. We begin Hebrews chapter 8. And as we get into this new chapter, and we've been in this section in Hebrews for several months now, and we've gone through uh, various different studies as we've looked at Melchizedek and we've looked at giving, we've looked at the doctrines related to eternal security, and we just want to remind everyone of where we are so we don't lose the forest for the trees. So often that's the problem is that we just want to take out the post hole digger on a verse and burrow down on a verb or a noun or some different details within the text that when we get done with that, we need to sort of get back up, get in our airplane and fly over the passage and get that overall view. And there's some really interesting things that we're about to go through in the uh, in chapter 8, they get introduced. Chapter 9 and 10, they get developed. And they're very important for understanding the challenge that comes beginning in chapter 10, where we come to the exhortation section of this uh, third or, excuse me, yeah, third or fourth uh, point that we have here in Hebrews. We are in the Actually, we're in the fourth section that began back in uh, chapter 7. Chapter 7, just to go back a little bit, began with a a discussion about Melchizedek, in the middle of which he just gets very uh, upset with them. Actually, that's the recovery. He got upset with them in 6. He comes back to the topic of Melchizedek to develop the idea of uh, being a priest. And so chapter 6... Um, excuse me, chapter 7 rather, chapter 7 deals with this whole issue of the Melchizedekian priesthood and why it is unique and why it's important for us as believers to have a distinct priesthood from the Old Testament priesthood. And that brought into play an understanding that God governs or administers history in different ways, in different ages, and the framework for understanding that is his revelation. Because what changes things from one dispensation to another, and that word dispensation uh, comes from the Greek oikonomos, oikonomia, Uh, this word has the idea of administration, and it is how God is overseeing human history, which tells us that human history isn't haphazard. It's not just a collection of random events that occur from things that people do, but that there are certain characteristics of each age that are there for a purpose. And we have to say, well, why is it this way under the Mosaic Law? Why did we have, uh, in the Old Testament, you have angels that seem to be visible at some times more than other times. You have a patriarchal priesthood in uh, the first part of Genesis, uh, actually extends up until you get a different kind of priesthood developed under the Mosaic Law. And what's going on with this priesthood? What are the characteristics of the patriarchal priesthood versus a uh, the, the Levitical priesthood? And then you also have this other priesthood that shows up, which is the uh, Melchizedekian priesthood, the royal priesthood of Melchizedek, which is very cryptic in the Old Testament. You just have this uh, quick little uh, vignette in Genesis chapter 15 where we're introduced to him and it's left to the writer of Hebrews to go back and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit explain the significance of this event in the Old Testament. And what we see in all of this 
is that the Bible all comes from the mind of God. This is the most, in, most important, fundamental thing that, that we have to understand is that God has revealed the Word of God. He's revealed the Scriptures so that there is a, a unity and a coherence in all 66 books uh, you have 40-plus authors in the Scripture, but they don't contradict each other. And you may have one author at one uh, generation giving information that helps elucidate something that was given maybe 500 or 1,000 or, or even 2,000 years earlier. And so we have to approach the Scripture from the presupposition that it's not a contradiction, from the presupposition that God actually knows what he's doing in revealing things, and from the presupposition that that every word is inspired by God, so that if God the Holy Spirit chooses this synonym instead of that synonym, that there is more than likely a reason for it. It's not haphazard. It's not just the necessarily the style or personality of the writer. And if we don't start from that that kind of a presupposition, that kind of assumption when we start to read the Bible, then we can easily go off um, off the charts and get involved in wrong thinking. So we constantly have to be brought back to understand a lot of things and then understand all these things, the boundaries God sets within his word. And then we also have rather um, cryptic statements or undeveloped statements, let's say, uh, statements where something is uh, alluded to, uh, something is said, and we think, well, that could mean this, but we're not really sure. Maybe it means that. We just have to wait till we get a little more data from Revelation to really understand what it means. And so uh, there are these things that show up as we go through Scripture here and there, and one of those is this idea of tabernacle and temple that is introduced in the first part of chapter 8. And we go back to the Old Testament, and we see the tabernacle, of course, is first introduced to us in the, in the Old Testament. And the word that is translated tabernacle that we will run into in verse 2 is the Greek word skene. And this means a habitation, a dwelling place. Its etymology in Greek is that it was used originally to refer to uh, tents or what we would call uh, a lean-to, a temporary dwelling place. But the words, the Greek word skene didn't originate with the Greeks. It shows a heavy Semitic influence, which indicates that there's some, some element of Jewish thought or influence, Old Testament influence behind that word because the Hebrew word for uh, the tabernacle, which also means a habitation or a dwelling place, is the word mishkan. And that S-H-K are your two consonants that form the root of your your um, uh, Greek word as well. Skene comes from mishkan, shows that the Bible has a uh, priority. It comes before these other languages. I think an argument can be made that Hebrew or a proto-Hebrew was the... Um, language in the Garden of Eden. Otherwise, the names like Adam, from Adamah, the ground, uh, Chava, Eve, for life, these words would not have meaning. 
These names would not have the meanings they have if that wasn't the language that was being spoken at the time. And once again, if you say something like that, you just violated uh, everything that you were taught in history, everything that you've been taught in science about evolution, about the development of cultures and everything else. And so what the Bible challenges us to do is to go back and rethink almost everything that we've ever learned in terms of a divine viewpoint framework. And to develop framework, you not only have to do detailed exegesis so that you make sure that the details are right, but you also have to come back up and be able to synthesize this and put things together. And this is one of the things that I've become irritated over in recent decades because the trend that's occurred among uh, some scholars and among evangelicals and hermeneutics is to never really correlate Scripture with Scripture. Well, you know, when, and, and what you run into is that, for example, you get into Genesis chapter 3 and you're introduced to this serpent, Nahash, and you're not told who it is in Genesis chapter 3. And so there are a lot of people today who teaches a principle of hermeneutics that, well, that's just a serpent. You can't say it's Satan because the original readers of Genesis would not have understood that that was Satan. You don't have an occurrence of the word shatan in the Pentateuch. So how can you say that's Satan? You can't read that into that period of history. And that, of course, violates, I think, a number of principles, one of which is what is called the analogy of Scripture, which is comparing Scripture with Scripture. And God makes it clear down through history who this is with subsequent revelation because shaitan means adversary. That's more of a title of the fallen angel than it is a proper name. And the first person that we, first personage we see after the creation of, of uh, Adam and Eve is this adversary to God that shows up in the garden and he counters God at every point. He functions as an adversary. So if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, walks like a duck, it's a duck. Just because it doesn't come out and say it's a duck doesn't mean it's there. It just doesn't suit the purpose of God in the progress of Revelation to say these things. And then when you come to Revelation... In Revelation chapter 12, God identifies the dragon, the serpent of old, Satan. It's sort of like God's thumping these people on the head and saying, okay, if you didn't get the symbolism up to this point, now that we're at the end of the Bible, if you weren't sharp enough to understand this, let me tell you who these, what these symbols are and who these individuals are that you should have figured it out all along. But we have this... Uh, mentality today, and it really is a very subtle attack on being able to understand anything of a of a macro thematic sense in the scriptures. Because what happens is these same people who are coming along, for the most part, who say you can't identify the serpent in Genesis three as Satan, is they're also the same ones who are finding reasons to say that that uh, Isaiah t- uh, fourteen twelve to fourteen doesn't refer to the fall of Lucifer, and that. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 28 verses 12 and following doesn't refer to the fall of Satan either. And so these passages are simply um, borrowed elements from various Canaanite or Phoenician uh, myths. And so now you're left without any ultimate origin of evil. You don't know where sin came from in the universe. 
you you end up really just just so abridging your understanding of the impact of scripture on history and on and, and I mean the the total framework that God gives us that you end up being forced into a position where all you think is that the Bible just addresses quote spiritual things it just talks about how to sin how to get saved in your spiritual life and what it does is it <clears throat> is you you lose the idea that there's this interconnectedness in the scriptures and that there's this correlation of ideas where one passage complements and helps to interpret another passage and that all of these pieces really do fit together. And what we have to do is use our brains to start thinking about these things and to realize that God hasn't connected all the dots but he put all the dots there so that we would connect them. And what you have today is uh, a lot of folks, uh, a lot of scholars who don't want to connect the dots. If God didn't connect the dots, we shouldn't connect the dots. Well, do you believe in the Trinity? See, that's a dot-connected doctrine. Paul, you can think more, more precisely and more accurately about the Trinity than the Apostle Paul did. Did you know that? See, a lot of people get confused with that. Well, look at everything the Apostle Paul knew. Look what he wrote. Yeah, but he didn't have the word Trinity. You have the word Trinity. So therefore, you can think, because you have a precise vocabulary that was developed in the post-biblical period, based on what the Scripture teaches, you have vocabulary that allows you to think more precisely about what Paul wrote than even what Paul had. And that's why when we talk about the progress of doctrine, we're really talking about the progress of understanding doctrine, which is a foundation for what I'm going to be teaching uh, on Monday nights in the, in the spring when I teach the history of doctrine course, is how to understand how uh, believers in the church age have come to refine and understand what the Scripture teaches about various categories of doctrine all the way, all the way up to the present. So we have to look at it in terms of framework. And it's not wrong to move beyond the details of Scripture as long as you don't slip your anchor. And see, that's what happens with a lot of folks is they will come along and they will develop what seems like a logical conclusion from a particular passage, but then they'll start trying to impose that on other things, and it really doesn't fit, but... Now they've got a nice tight system of theology that in and of itself, like, like, like high Calvinism, is logically coherent. But it, when you look at the passages that are cited as proof texts for the elements, those passages don't always say that. And so you have to go back and constantly go back and forth between the overall uh, synthesis and, or, and uh, sort of the universal principles you derive from Scripture and make sure that you can ultimately trace everything back to what is uh, said in the Scripture. So one of these things that pops up is this whole concept of skene, which means dwelling or God's dwelling among his people and on the earth. And just think with me through the Bible for a minute. When is the first time we see God having any sort of presence and dwelling on the earth? Pre-Adam, we see, according to my view, uh, in the view of many, Ezekiel 28 talks about the Garden of God, which is where Satan fell. And this would be the planet before the, its present state, I would put it before Genesis 1-2, 
This is the garden of God. This is where uh, the uh, creature in uh, Ezekiel 28, we'll go there in a minute, where the creature in Ezekiel 28 is serving God. And this is where his fall occurs. And then there's this restoration of the planet. And then we see God coming and walking regularly in the garden that is east of Eden. It's not in Eden. Where's Eden? That's where God's dwelling on the earth is. In, in the, in the perfect environment of the Garden of Eden. He, and he comes and he walks, he has fellowship, he teaches, he, uh, dialogues with man until man sins. And then God's presence is still on the earth, he just sets an armed guard around it, the cherubs with the flaming swords. They have the power to take the life of anyone who tries to get into the Garden of Eden. And so that is, they're protecting the tree of life. There's still a presence of God there. We come to Genesis 6-3, and God says he's tired of abiding with man. Now, if you've got a King James-based translation, it says that the Spirit of God was tired of, of striving with man. But the Hebrew word is only used one time in, all, in Hebrew literature, and they weren't sure in 1611 how to translate that Hebrew word. And so when you come up into the 19th century and the 20th century, they start finding documents and parchments with uh, Semitic languages like Ugaritic and uh, up in Phoenicia. You have Akkadian, you have other you have Arabic, other languages that are very close to Hebrew, and they discover that the cognate word for the word translated uh, strive in Genesis 6 isn't doesn't mean strive, it means abide in all the related languages in Ugaritic and Akkadian and, and Arabic. So what God is saying is, I don't want my, my spirit to continue to abide with man because the thoughts of his heart are evil continually. So God has a presence on the earth that is now going to depart the earth, which is why you don't have the delegation of judicial authority to man until after the Noahic flood, when you get the Noahic Covenant and the delegation of judicial authority in terms of capital punishment. Once you get that, that lays a theological foundation for government. Man is responsible to govern his affairs, and he's responsible to adjudicate in the case of crime. And so you go from Genesis 6, and now God's no longer on the planet. He shows up now and then with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, and then you come into the period of the Exodus, and he's going to have a new dwelling place set up called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle means a dwelling place. It's a, um, a temporary dwelling place that preceded the, the temple that Solomon built. And God's glory resides there in what's called the Shekinah glory. What was that word I just used? Shekinah. You hear skene. Shekinah, Mishkan, see, those are all cognates. And Shekinah is not found anywhere in the Old Testament in Hebrew, by the way. It was a word the rabbis developed in the intertestamental period to describe the dwelling of God in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And, of course, when uh, the Babylonians were going to uh, destroy the temple before God brought the fifth uh, stage of divine discipline on Israel in 586, 
Uh, Ezekiel had a vision where he saw the Shekinah glory depart the temple, cross the uh, Kidron Valley, go across to the east to the Mount of Olives, and then ascend to heaven. And, of course, that's the same place from where Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. That fits the pattern. So you have these patterns that show up over and over again in the Bible. And then Jesus comes back, and you have God dwelling among men. And then Jesus ascends to heaven, and ten days later the Holy Spirit comes down, and the body of every believer becomes a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit who makes the body of the believer a temple for the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit and uh, this and the Son of God and the Father. So all three members of the Trinity inhabit every single believer. And then there will be a removal of that habitation to heaven. But there's something else that's going on, and that is that these patterns of habitation on the earth, uh, the physical patterns, the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament, reflect something that is not earthly. It's re- they reflect something that actually exists in heaven and has a heavenly pattern. So what we're going to see here as we go through chapter 8, which talks about the uh, priestly service, uh, the high priestly ministry of the Lord in, in uh, the first six verses uh, hits the main point. It's going to start off with a word that says, this is the main point. This is the main thing I've been saying. It's not just summarizing what he said in chapter 6. He is summarizing what he's about to say based on what, I mean, I said chapter 6. I've kept saying that tonight. Chapter 7, he is not summarizing what he said in chapter 7, he is drawing a basic point from what he said in chapter 7 that becomes a foundation for the next stage in his argument. And he says because we have a, a high priest who is in heaven, who is serving at the heavenly perfect temple, there must be this covenant structure he, what he's doing in heaven must have some relationship to a legal foundation. It doesn't just happen. God doesn't do things apart from law. He has the, I don't care for the word so much, but it's one that has been used historically in theology. God condescends to his creature to limit the way he interacts with his creature according to creaturely uh, standards so the creature can understand what God is doing. And so God limits, willingly limits his uh, interaction with man and defines his interaction with man in terms of these covenants, these contracts. And so what happens when Jesus ascends to heaven and he's at the right hand of the Father and he is serving as our high priest and he is serving in the heavenly temple, which is the archetype of the earthly uh, tabernacle and temple, that all of this is founded on what must be a superior covenant because the earthly temple was temporary, was based on a temporary earthly covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and so he brings in the whole idea of a of this new covenant which is which supplants the old covenant and the very terminology old and new tells you that the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was never intended to be permanent. It was never to have any uh, kind of longevity. It was designed 
for a purpose. It had pedagogical purpose. It had uh, legal purposes in terms of providing a government for Israel, but it wasn't intended to be perfect. From the very beginning, God intended to replace it with a superior covenant and a superior priesthood. And so once he lays down these points in chapter 8, which is a short chapter, 13 verses, we come to chapter 9 where he starts to connect things to the furniture in the tabernacle. And if you look down here on the table, we have a model of the tabernacle. It's show and tell time. And this will be up here most of the time. We also have some other uh, articles of furniture in the tabernacle that we've uh, picked up for uh, teaching in prep school, and I'll be bringing those out as we go through uh, chapter 9 to talk about how each of these things in the tabernacle relates to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But these things all all connect together. So the writer of Hebrews rehearses the elements of, this, of the earthly tabernacle in the first part of chapter 9, and then in beginning in verse 6, he starts to talk about the role of the priest in the, uh, in the tabernacle and then moves in verse 11 to the role of Christ as our high priest in the heavenly tabernacle and the importance of that in relationship to the sacrifice, that the sacrifices that you had in the Old Covenant were temporary, they weren't permanent, they could not resolve the problem, they were only a, a, a temporary fix and in contrast to Christ's death, which is once for all, that comes across in the, when he gets down to verse uh, 16, down to 22, and then he <clears throat> uh, conclu- wraps it up in the last part of the chapter. And this will then set the stage eventually for his, the warning which begins, in, an exhortation which begins in chapter 10, uh, verses 19 to 39. But all of this is ultimately based on the fact that Christ had to ascend to heaven to be at the Father's right hand to serve and operate as a high priest because of these implications of this for the spiritual life of the believer today. So when we look at this broad panorama of these themes, I was going through this today, and I started making some connections. And one of the connections I want to work through initially is just this idea of tabernacle, not what we've talked about already in terms of the dwelling of God in the garden and before the flood and uh, in the uh, tabernacle, but just the idea of temple and the use of the word skene and this concept of a heavenly prototype or archetype for the tabernacle. And one of the things we note when we get into verse 2 is that this tabernacle in heaven is called a true tabernacle. The Greek word there, alethanes, has the idea that this is the, the archetype. This is the true, the perfect, the ideal standard by which anything that is made on earth is simply a copy. It is a, uh, a limited a copy of this perfect prototype that's in heaven. And we're told that God pitched it, and he, and not man, and the word, the verb that is used 
In the Greek for God pitching, it's the same verb that's used in Exodus 33:7 of Moses pitching the tent, the tabernacle in the Old Testament. So he is definitely drawing this uh, comparison and contrast between the two. And so we look at some of these passages uh, like Hebrews 9:11 that Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. Once again, this drives us into the future. The good things to come, there's this anticipation. And if you think with me back to when we first started Hebrews, and we looked at a number of the things in the beginning, what, two or three years ago, that the writer of Hebrews is always focused on the future, that one of the main ideas in Hebrews is to challenge believers to not grow complacent in their spiritual life today because there's ultimate accountability. On the other side of the accountability, there is position and privilege in the kingdom, ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ. So we need to live today in light of eternity. And that's what we see in 9-11, return to this theme. Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. So his high priestly ministry today is related in some way to what's going to happen in the future for believers. Now, we have to hold on to that idea. Uh, There's going to be some connections between that and some of the things we see in Revelation, but all these things start to uh, interconnect. So he came as high priest, the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle. And that word for perfect is complete. It's from teleos, uh, teleos, uh, the same word we run into again and again in Hebrews. It's the more, it's the complete tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation. It's not a, something that man made. It is, it is God made. I think that excludes having the Ark of the Covenant up there. You know, some people take the view that, that God just sort of, um, zapped the Ark of the Covenant into heaven in five, before 586 BC and, and it's, that's where it resides today. But I think it, this is a heavenly, uh, heavenly tabernacle. The furniture there is not made with hands. And I don't think it has all the elements of furniture anyway that we have on earth because some of it's related to the sinfulness of man. You don't have sin in heaven. When you come, go back to the Old Testament, Exodus 25, 9 tells us that according to all that I show you, God speaking to uh, Moses, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furnishings, just so you shall make it. God shows uh, Moses on Mount Sinai a pattern for the tabernacle, which is the heavenly standard. Now, it's not clear whether he has a picture, he has a vision, how it accomplished, but what Moses sees on Mount Sinai is a pattern based on the heavenly uh, archetype. This is repeated again in Exodus 25.40. See to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. These are not random uh, things that are in the tabernacle. They all fit into a broader perspective and a broader broader plan. Uh, Psalm 11, verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. So there is a dwelling place in heaven that is, that, that's ultimately the idea, a temple or, or, or tabernacle is a dwelling place that is where the Lord's throne is located. So when we get into passages as we've been in Revelation 4 and 5 and some other passages in Revelation 12, uh, where you have these heavenly scenes before the throne of God, not the throne of Christ, because he's sitting 
on the Father's throne right now, at the right hand of the Father, according to Revelation 3.21. He is not in uh, on his own throne, that this is where God, the Father's throne is in heaven. We go on to Psalm 18.6. The psalmist says, In my distress I called upon the Lord, cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple. Uh, Micah 1.2 calls to the Jews to listen to him. Hear all you peoples, listen, O earth, and all that is in it, let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. So again and again, I'm just tra- throwing up a series of these verses to reinforce this idea. Uh, Habakkuk uh, 2.20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Uh, then when we get into Revelation, Revelation 15.5, after these things, John says, I looked and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. But guess what? When we get down to the end of Revelation, in Revelation 21.22, and I don't have a slide for it, there's no temple in heaven. In the new heavens and the new earth, there's no temple because God the Father and God the Son dwell with man. So this whole temple thing seems to have a also have a somewhat temporary significance until the new heavens and new earth are, are created and the whole sin and evil problem is completely dealt with and we're in a completely new heavens and earth that has never been affected by by sin and by uh, by rebellion. So there's this whole idea that we have to deal with that just that you pick up here and there all the way through Scripture. It's never uh, fully developed, as it were, in places, but there's enough evidence there to where we can put it together with some other things and come to some uh, pretty clear uh, conclusions. Then, as we think about this and the idea that there's this heavenly temple, tabernacle, that there is a royal priest that is now ministering in that uh, temple, it takes us back to another piece of imagery that we have in the Old Testament, and that's in Ezekiel chapter 28. So let's turn back to Ezekiel chapter 28. This is our well-known passage that deals with the uh, fall of Satan. However, he's not identified as Satan in the passage. He's identified as the king of Tyre. And you have two figures in, in, in Ezekiel 28. Initially, the son of man, which is Ezekiel, is to take up a taunt, or a taunt is a funeral dirge uh, over the prince of Tyre. It's a different word from king of Tyre. Prince of Tyre in verse 2, king of Tyre in verse 12. And in verse 2, the focus is on the human ruler of Tyre. But the human ruler of Tyre, who is identified as or very closely with Melkart, who was the uh, kind of the Baal counterpart of the chief of the pantheon in, uh, in Tyre, is um, had, there's a real power behind that idol. And as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, that the real power behind the idols are demons. And so there's the uh, demonic false religion that lies behind the false religion of Tyre. And, of course, the real power behind the throne is the king of Tyre, the one identified as the king of Tyre in verse 12. And this is who we identify with 
with uh, Lucifer or Satan because the things that are said of the king of Tyre can't be applied to any other human ruler. And so we've gone through this passage many times, but he's said to be absolutely perfect, uh, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. These are never terms applied to Adam. He's said to be in Eden, the garden of God, not the garden of Eden. And so that's an important term to recognize. So why does a writer under inspiration say garden of God instead of garden of Eden? Because this is the garden of God. It's where God dwelt prior to uh, the, the current heavens and earth. And every precious stone was your covering. Now, this is the key thing. Every precious stone in verse 13, look at the list. The sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you in the day you were, were created. Okay, you look at those precious and semi-precious stones there in verse 13. Nine of the twelve are on the breastplate of the high priest. Now, if you're Jewish and you're reading this and you're familiar with the breastplate of the high priest with the 12 stones on, as soon as you read this, that's the connection that's going to come into your head. And so there's this allusion in just the wearing of these stones to the priestly ministry. But it doesn't stop there. You look down at verse 14, it says, You were the anointed cherub, who covers, and you have this word anointed Mashiach, which is the same word that's applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. It simply means an anointed or an appointed one, someone who is designated by God with a specific uh, mission. And he is a chair. But all of this, these are terms that speak of a certain role that he has. And then when you get down to verse um, verse 16, by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it's an allusion to the fact that Tyre was this tremendous mercantile power in the ancient world. They were Phoenicians. Their ships went everywhere. They colonized Carthage in North Africa. They colonized uh, the Iberian Peninsula. Incidentally, the etymology of Iber is... Uh, like Ivrit Hebrew, it's the comes from the same same root. And uh, early Car- the early Carthaginian language uh, was very very close to Hebrew. It is a Semitic language, and the Phoenicians spoke a Northwest Semitic dialect, very close to Hebrew. So you start seeing interesting connections here. And they sent out their ships, and they, uh, and we'll study this. It's fascinating. We'll study this when we get a little further along in First Kings, that at the time of David and Solomon, there was this uh, trade alliance between Solomon and the Phoenicians, Hiram, who was the king of Tyre at that time. That's some um, uh, uh, 400 years earlier than our passage in Ezekiel. At that time, there was this alliance. Scriptures tell us that the Phoenicians shared their shipping navigational secrets with uh, Solomon and between the uh, uh, Phoenicians who controlled the trade routes on the oceans and the Jews who, because of the size and location of their empire, controlled all the land trade routes, all trade, all commerce on the earth was locked up and under the control of the Phoenicians and Israel during the time of Solomon's empire. 
and you couldn't uh, you couldn't transport goods anywhere without having to deal with either Israel on the land or the Phoenicians on the sea, and so they were traders. And but there's something that's being applied to this king of Tyre on that's that's analogous to trading, and that's what a priest would do. A priest brings the worship, the offerings of a people to God. A prophet speaks from God to the people. Priest speaks for, speaks for the people to God. And so what the picture that we see here is that the king of Tyre, who is uh, Lucifer, has this role that functions as a like a priest for the for the host of heaven, the angels, and he is trafficking, and I really mean that in a good way, in the uh, in the worship of the angels. He's bringing that before God. But guess who gets, keeps getting seeing this gets passed on? It passes through him to God, and he wants it to stop with him. He wants it. Uh, he sees all this worship that he is, all this glory and honor that is coming to God, and he wants it for himself. And so we have the perversion of this original priestly-like character. And there's things in the Scripture that I don't think we can be very dogmatic about, but we have this priestly overtone to uh, the king of Tyre here, and then we're going to have a new high priest who functions in, in the heavens who is a creator creature united in one person. This early uh, priest creature Satan is called the bright and morning star in Isaiah uh, 14, 12 to 14. And when we come to the end of Revelation, the title that's applied to the Lord Jesus Christ is the bright and morning star. I mean, there's something going on here in terms of uh, the creature fails to perform certain functions, and it's up to God himself to do what needs to be done for the creature, and so he becomes a creature. And And I don't know what all the implications of that are, but we can't just say, well, I don't understand it, so we it's got to mean something else. Because that's what a lot of people do. Oh, that doesn't fit. Uh, I don't know why that would be. Let's let's give it a naturalistic explanation. But we can say these things are clearly there in Scripture, and we'll just um, have to recognize it's something of a of a of a mystery. So we have this this relation between Satan and the heavenly court, and this, of course, takes us from the whole concept of the dwelling of God and this priestly concept into uh, the angelic conflict. So what we see here is that, that, and we're reminded that in Hebrews, in Ephesians, talks about Jesus ascended above the angels. He is elevated over the angels. Uh, that um, man was created uh, lower than the angels, but eventually he will rule over the angels. First Corinthians 6, 3 talks about, don't you know that we'll eventually judge angels? All of a sudden, what, what's happened here, as we just start thinking about plugging this detail of, of Hebrews 8 into a broader uh, structure in the Bible, we realize that it shows that what we're doing in our Christian life in relation to Christ, our, our high priest, really fits within a much larger cosmic uh, conflict. It, it fits with, it has cosmic ramifications that the decisions we make every day in terms of our own spiritual life 
don't just affect our families or not just related to what's happening in our uh, area of life, our arena of life, but it has these ramifications that, that go out uh, throughout the cosmos. This is why angels are watching us. Uh, several passages talk about that in in First uh, Peter and in First uh, Corinthians 11. We have these passages that talk about angels watching us, observing us. This is why we studied the angelic conflict in relationship to the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, that these angels aren't just watching. They're not just spiritual voyeurs. There's a purpose to their watching. They are uh, legal witnesses. There's a forensic role to what they're doing. Forensic means it's related to it's related to courtroom activity, and so it's related to the justice of God. So all of a sudden, what we see is the the throne of God in heaven, and the the throne of God is centers in a heavenly ta- temple, a heavenly tabernacle that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is currently serving in that temple as a high priest in view of things to come. All of this is is focused on something. It's all driving toward an ultimate uh, conclusion. And this takes us even further back to some other connections that we can make uh, both in Hebrews and in the Old Testament. We look at Hebrews 2.2. talks about if the word, that was the Mosaic law in context, if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. There's a couple of observations we made when we went through that. Number one, that this isn't the only place that talks about angels being involved in giving the Mosaic law. It's also mentioned in uh, Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 19, where Paul said, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgression, again, a very technical legal term violating a standard. Uh, it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So we come back to this relationship between the giving of the law and angels, and that the giving of the law shows that angels are involved with the giving of the law, Hebrews 2.2, but they're related to the observing the fact that they're uh, they're are penalties that are uh, uh, given, that are um, assigned to people based on their violation of the Mosaic Law. So we see this connection now between angels and law. And angels, again, we see the same kind of thing that we see in Revelation 2 and 3, angels being witnesses in the Old Testament, they're witnessing Israel in light of Israel's obedience or disobedience to the Mosaic Law. This is why when the covenant's renewed by uh, Moses in uh, Deuteronomy, in passages like Deuteronomy 4.26 and 30.19 and 32.1, he calls upon the heavens and the earth as witnesses. Mosaic Law says never accept a charge against anybody unless there are two or three witnesses. Now, who are the witnesses against Israel if they violate the covenant, the heavens and the earth? Is this the physical heavens and the physical earth? Well, you, how can a non-volitional, impersonal thing be a witness? This is a figure of speech for the inhabitants of heaven 
are the, what the Bible calls the host of heaven, which are the angels, and the inhabitants of the earth. He's calling upon God's two volitional creatures to be witnesses of God's justice as it's being worked out in the history of Israel. God lays down the parameters for everything that's going to go on in, in Israel's history with a legal covenant. God doesn't just do what he does with Israel in a, in a um, haphazard manner. It's all done according to law. Even God is willing to condescend to function within and to limit his actions to a covenant. And this lays down a very important principle that was discovered and rediscovered uh, by the Puritans back uh, in the uh, 1600s. A man by the name of Samuel Rutherford wrote a tract called Lex Rex. The law is king. And that's where this comes from. It's not the king who's the ultimate authority politically. It is the law. And this is why the law matters. And we have a tradition in our culture that is at stake today, and that is the rule of law. And even God is willing to uh, limit his the way he deals with man according to these covenants. And we go back to the creation covenant in Genesis 1, and its revision in the Adamic covenant in Genesis 3, and then the Noahic covenant. So all this all fits together. And one thing... One part of the puzzle fits with another part of the puzzle, fits with another part of the puzzle, and it all comes together as we approach the end of the church, the the uh, apostolic age, with the giving of the of the canon of scripture. And so we connect the temple, we connect it to the, the whole operation of the temple to the angelic conflict, the angelic conflict. Uh, relates to the whole covenant structure. That covenant structure ultimately has to uh, conclude with a perfect covenant that solves the creature's problem, which is the new covenant, which is why he brings the new covenant into chapter 8 at this particular point. And, and this all ties back to the basic problems that you see in the te- temple in the Old Testament. And there's two problems that have to be resolved in history. And the first problem is has to do with the uh, character of God, because God and God alone can provide life for the creature. But because the creature is sinned, which is the second problem, the, there, it, when the creature comes into the presence of God, there has to be... A, a reckoning, a dealing with sin on some sort of, of permanent basis. And that permanent basis uh, comes through, the, of course, the sacrifice of Christ. But we see this in the Old Testament when Isaiah shows up in heaven. He's in the temple in heaven. But he's a creature. He's fallen. The sin problem hasn't been resolved yet. And he says, woe is me, for I'm a... Uh, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hands is a live coal, which he's taken uh, with the tongs from the altar, and he places that on Isaiah's lips to cleanse him. It's that picture of fire, purification, uh, cleansing. So that brings another element into this whole thing with, with the temple and the tabernacle is this, that it is at the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the centerpiece 
is the Holy of Holies. And in the center of the Holy of Holies, which is a box, basically, and in the center of the Holy of Holies is another box, which is the Ark of the Covenant. And it is a, a wooden box covered with gold. In the midst of the box, they place the Ten Commandments, which are, are an emblem of man's sin. And there's a lid that's placed over the over the Ark of the Covenant, the called the Kafaret, the um, uh, mercy seat. And uh, over the mercy seat, you have the two cherubs who represent the holiness and righteousness of God. And it is in the center there that the problem of sin is resolved. And so this, of course, ties back to the fact that Jesus Christ has to be that ultimate sacrifice that the Old Testament sacrifice is pointed to, and he will, when he ascends, go into the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple, and that is what solves the problem and opens the uh, access way into heaven for fallen man, and all these things get resolved on the basis of law, on the basis of all these structures. So it's, it's, it's very complex, but it shows that the Bible's not just this simple little thing of a bunch of stories that are strung together to sort of enter- entertain Sunday school kids. But the more you get into it and the more you dig, the more you realize that there's all these threads that constantly show up again and again all the way through the Scriptures, and they're not just interesting little things that that we see, but they all uh, we put, can put all these things together, tie, tie them together, and it gives us a, a great understanding of what we have. And the focal point of all this is to drive us to a recognition that, that we're in training right now, and we will ultimately rule and reign with Christ, who is now our high priest, but will be the ruler in the millennial kingdom. He will be take the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords at his second coming, and we rule and reign with him. We rule and reign over the angels. Right now we're lower than the angels, and the angels are watching us. Part of the reason they watch us is because they are seeing the out, just as in the Old Testament they saw the outworking of divine justice on Israel, they're seeing the outworking of divine justice on us. And they're witnesses to that so that they are, A, learning about the justice of God, B, they're learning how you are being trained and how the justice of God is dealing with the sin in your life so that they recognize that when you show up at the judgment seat of Christ, and you get rewards and promotion based on those rewards that when you are then promoted to judge them, they understand why you're qualified to judge them. And that's, that's, that fits within this whole framework of Revelation 2 and 3 and all these other passages to show us that, that our lives in the church age don't have to do with just our day-to-day experience, just the, the, the drudgery of work, uh, dealing with uh, different problems that seem to consume us, but that this is all training ground. We're all being witnessed and observed by the angels. They are learning things they can't learn any other way, and eventually all of this gets evaluated at our performance exam at the judgment seat of Christ, and on the basis of that, uh, we get placed in various positions of responsibility and leadership in the millennial kingdom and on into eternity, including judging the angels. And all of that comes out of an understanding of what's happening in Hebrews 8 and 9. So we'll get into the details next week. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer.
Father, thank you for the opportunity to see these things to, tonight and just to try to look at the broad picture and how the things that are revealed in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10 uh, just don't pop up in a vacuum, but they connect many different facets, many different events, many different things that have been part of history since the fall of man in Genesis and will be a part of, his, of future history, be a part of the future kingdom, be a part of heaven uh, on into the future. Uh, challenge us with the things that we studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.